Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Thursday, June 17th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, businesses and community leaders get creative to incentivize COVID-19 vaccinations. Then DACA turns nine. And writer Annette Gordon-Reed contemplates Juneteenth. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. What do chicken, catfish, and $5 million have in common? They may all be able to improve Mississippi's COVID-19 vaccination rate. As vaccine update plateaus in the state, community leaders and businesses look to creative incentives to drive up demand. Sharon Ivory is the clinical coordinator for Central Mississippi Health Services. She's working with several Jackson churches to organize a vaccination event uh, this Saturday. Uh, There, they'll offer $25 Chick-fil-A gift cards to the first 100 people to show up. She tells MPB's Kobe Vance she often hears vaccine-hesitant people express the same set of concerns. Folks want questions about if it's safe or the reason Johnson Johnson had the issue. Should I get it? Or better yet, in the end, a couple of years later down the line, it might do something to you, especially the younger folks. But my thing is... I believe it's much safer to have the vaccine for the family-wise because you never know the outcome. Somebody get vaccine, you 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, all of a sudden you got to turn around and they're in the hospital or they're not making it out. Our thing is to put it, push it out there, put it in the arms, put it in the kids' ages 12 and on up so they can get back to some kind of normalcy with school. A lot of the kids want to sports and they weren't able to play the sports and things, I believe getting the vaccine in their arm will make it much better, easier this year for things like that to happen. And, you know, get back to school, not worrying that somebody catching and then all of a sudden you quarantine the class or the, you quarantine the school to be out 14 days and then get tested again, come back, and then all of a sudden you have another breakout like we did. So our biggest thing is try to get us out there, but the problem we having is just having a vaccine fair, they're not coming. So now it's time to try to give them a little incentives and see how that works out. Is that incentives enough or we have to go a little bigger? We know that the other states are having any mass gifts given out, scholarships, million-dollar lottery, things of that nature and stuff. But Mississippi had not got there yet. So right now we're starting small. We're trying to push it. Maybe eventually it'll, it'll, it'll grow, get a little better. We'll have some more, and folks will come out and try to get vaccinated. So when it comes to, like, these incentive programs, do you think this is going to be a something that's going to help get people out? I, I believe it is. Uh, we're trying. But I believe you, you will see more folks to come out and get the vaccine. But I know that some of these parents do want to bring their kids in because we have had calls. Do y'all have the vaccine for the child? Finally, we do. And I am happy that we do. So we can go ahead and start pushing it out. And the parents can be safe. 
safe and feel safe that their child gonna be all right when they take them to school. So this incentive is just a little boost and kick. So it'll be a blessing that we get a. I would love a big turnout this Saturday. Y'all, y'all have a hundred gift cards to give out. Do you think that the, that, you know, the, even a small incentive like this is going to be enough to help people get over that hill of if they, won't they kind of mental attitude? Well, it's a 50-50 chance, so it, it can go either way. But on the way, we'll know if we try. So this is our first one this Saturday. We'll see how it goes. So if we have to change it a little bit, then we can make it better for the next event. And... Um, when it comes to like these things, do you think that y'all are going to be pursuing other partnerships in the future to try to uh, continue this? Yes, we are. And we, ha- we are having some meetings coming up current in the near future with some other organizations to see what we can do. And right now, we're just pacing ourselves. So once we meet with the other organization, other folks that wants to collab with us, we'll see where we're going from there. This is going to be a perfect idea this Saturday to see how it turns out in order for us to adjust. Uh, Nurse Ivory, is there anything else we might not have hit on that you think is a, a big part of the, the effort y'all are doing this Saturday or even just, you know, the overall things that you've been seeing as you've been doing uh, coronavirus vaccinations for the past few months? Just that we are getting more folks like even the insurance company now are hiring staff to go out to these further counties to give vaccines where they're not able to get it. So they are actually collab with certain areas and clinics and other places, community out that way and going out there to ask to give the vaccines to even folks that's not able to get it, which is, I'm I'm glad because I'm part of that group that's been helped training and getting them up to parts so they can do it. So that, that's been wonderful. And on, on that same note, I was curious, you know, Jackson's not necessarily the most rural county, however... There's a lot of communities in this area that still face those vaccine deserts. Do you think this is going to help reach those people? I, I do. I really do. And the more we continue to get out to the churches and other areas that's not able to, and us to get into that area, I believe so. Vaccine incentive campaigns often reflect the personality of the states in which they're waged. West Virginia has famously committed to give away guns and trucks to those who get the shot. Washington is offering free marijuana. Mississippi State Senator Derek Simmons is banking on the power of catfish and hospitality. This evening, he's hosting a three-in-one vaccine pop-up community event and fish fry at an Elks Lodge in Greenville. He says the Mississippi's low vaccination rate is a serious concern. We are the last in the country. We are 51st uh, with a vaccination rate of about 29, 29%. Um, the U.S. vaccination rate is about 44%, and our neighbors around us, they are doing a, a better than we are as a state. So we need to do everything in our power to increase the vaccination rate and encourage people that taking the vaccination is the right thing to do to have a healthier state regarding COVID. What programs do you think Mississippi can do to incentivize people to get the vaccine at this point? What we've seen a lot of uh, across the nation, we've seen a lot of incentives. We've seen people doing like raffles. We've seen people give monetary gifts, something similar to a raffle. We've been seeing a lot of doctors and a lot of other leaders in the communities to, to, to tell and encourage the residents that it's okay to get the vaccine. And I understand the hesitancy, so we just need to do everything we can to try to decrease that the, the, 
the, the hesitancy about uh, individuals getting the vaccine and increase uh, awareness around how important it is and how it will, in fact, save lives. At this event, you'll also be discussing the coronavirus and the Delta and these rural communities in Mississippi. Do you think that that combined with you know, the incentives that y'all are offering will help you know make people help people change their minds or help uh, bridge some of those gaps that are there? We, we hope so. We will have the faith-based community that will be there as well. A lot of times, um, people listen to their faith-based faith-based leaders, and so we will have them present. And um, they will also be able to uh, share a word with with the people who are in attendance. So we are pulling all facets of the community to try to encourage people that getting the vaccination is the right thing to do. Mississippi is heavily reliant on federal funding for its vaccination efforts, and those federal dollars have restrictions on their use. That's why Mississippi hasn't yet launched an incentive campaign on the state level, although the health department says they're working on it. Of course, private companies like supermarket chain Kroger can still offer splashy motivators to get shots in arms. We speak with a representative of Kroger's Delta division. Kroger Health is giving away $5 million dollars and that's $1 million to one winner each week for five weeks, as well as 50 groceries for a year, and that'll be 10 each week for five weeks. So the value of that is about $13,000. In terms of, uh, since y'all have announced this program, have y'all seen any change in the number of people coming to get vaccines at Kroger? I can speak to the Delta Division, which is, of course, Mississippi, Tennessee, Arkansas, primarily. And I can say within Delta Division, we have had an increase in uh, people getting their vaccines. So the program is definitely working. And, you know, we're really, really encouraged by the number of people who have expressed interest in the promotion, as well as, you know, just coming to us to get their vaccine. Now, I'm certain a lot of people are probably asking who qualifies for the vaccine or for the incentive program. Definitely anyone, any any of our shoppers, anyone who comes to Kroger and can get both of their vaccination shots with us. And uh, we also have a third party. Um, actually, you can go online to submit your information for the giveaway. But we're so excited to have our associates also apply or also submit their information. So anyone is available and can win any of the prizes that I've just mentioned. Coming up, a look at DACA, nine years in. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, is nine years old this week. Put into effect under President Obama, it's a landmark immigration policy that creates a pathway for people who came to the United States as undocumented immigrant children to legally work. Patricia Ice is legal project director for the Mississippi Immigrants' Rights Alliance, an advocacy group for immigrants. She says even though DACA has survived nearly a decade, its future isn't necessarily clear. I hope that it's not uncertain, but because it is a program that is subject to review by federal courts, 
that could make it uncertain because the court system has the power of review. And if someone brings a case against DACA, then the courts could review it and find a decision against DACA, you know, find in in favor of the people who are against DACA. So that is why I think it could be in jeopardy. And also because we have a majority Supreme Court that were picked by Republican presidents and the fact that Donald Trump has appointed the last three Supreme Court justices, we are, you know, we are concerned about what the Supreme Court will do if they receive a DACA case. So that is why I think that it could be in jeopardy. Talk to me about what you've seen this program do for DACA recipients in Mississippi and how has their contributions impacted the state? I believe that it's done a a great deal for DACA recipients. I have several clients who are DACA recipients, and I know others. They are nurses. They are RNs. They are in some states, other states. I know some have gone to law school and have become attorneys. Some have become doctors. But the ones that I know um, personally here have you know, have gotten very good jobs and are supporting their families, et cetera. I know one young couple where both of them have DACA and they have gotten married since they had DACA and now they have three children. So they're able to support their United States citizen children and to support each other and to buy a house that can accommodate all of them you know, in a nice neighborhood. So, you know, the DACA benefits have really helped people because they're able to get a work authorization, they're able to get a driver's license, and they're able to contribute to the society. Many of them are the the main breadwinners in their households because some of them have undocumented parents. And so the parents may be able to work but basically they're working underground. But the young person in the house who is a DACA recipient can work legally, can drive legally, and it's just extremely helpful for them to have that status because they're able to get all kinds of jobs and they're able to go to school to get an undergraduate degree, to get a graduate degree. So it's an extremely important program. Patricia, is there anything I didn't ask you that you think is important to add? (laughs) Probably several things, but I am really thrilled that the program has continued and also new people who have not had DACA before are able to apply under the Biden administration. And so that is a great thing. They haven't changed the requirements, however, so a person still has to have come to the United States by 2007, and a person still has to have had a certain immigration status in 2012. So we're hoping that they will change that requirement so that young people 
who did not come before 2007 but otherwise meet the eligibility requirements can also apply for DACA because the requirements at this point are kind of stringent. When the law came out in 2012, what they did is they looked at a five-year period, a five-year window period. So at that time, you had to have been in the United States at least five years. But now it's been 14 years that a person has had to have been here. And so that makes it difficult for some of the young people who I would consider dreamers, but not necessarily eligible for DACA. So one thing that we are really hoping is that they will change that date of 2007 so that people can apply for DACA who came in after 2007. Patricia Ice, Legal Project Director with the Mississippi Immigrants Rights Alliance, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. According to the Mississippi Immigrant Rights Alliance, about a 1,000 Mississippians are DACA recipients. Coming up, writer Annette Gordon-Reed reflects on the history of Juneteenth. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. This Saturday is Juneteenth, the oldest known celebration commemorating the end of slavery in the U.S. On June 19, 1865, Union soldiers led by Major General Gordon Granger landed at Galveston, Texas, with news that the war had ended and that the enslaved were now free. This was two and a half years after President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. In a series of short essays under the title On Juneteenth, Pulitzer Prize winner Annette Gordon-Reed incorporates her Texas upbringing with the history behind a holiday that started in a state that kept fighting in a war that was already officially over. Reed tells us that slaves began leaving upon Granger's news, even though technically their actions were legally premature. Thousands of people left plantations and joined with the Union Army to travel with them. So they did leave the plantation after that. But legally, it did not have that result in in doing away with slavery everywhere. In Texas, your home state, the place where Juneteenth was born, slavery didn't end until two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation. How did that come about? It came about because the Confederate Army in the Southwest, the Army of the Trans-Mississippi, continued to fight. Lee surrendered in April, but that army kept fighting until the beginning of June. And even though they won the last battle of the Civil War, they looked at the situation and realized that there was no hope for them to continue, and then they surrendered at the beginning of June. That gives Granger the power to go to Galveston and make this pronouncement. So it was the armed conflict kept going on. They couldn't take control of that area until they surrendered. I've heard you say it was not breaking news, so to speak, for slaves, that word of mouth had already reached them about slavery ending. At least in Galveston. Galveston is a port city, and as people travel back and forth, you know, from port to port, uh, people find out stuff. So there are, there were indications, reports that people knew ahead of time what Granger might say. 
What is the advent of Juneteenth, particularly in recent years? Well, it is celebrated now in, I think, all but about three states. It started out as a holiday about Texas. And when Texans moved from the state and went to California and other places, they took it with them. And so it was something that traveled by word of mouth. Just in the past decade, however, there's been great interest in it. And there are lots of celebrations of it, and it's sort of become almost nationwide. It's really just taken off, I would say, in the last decade that people, there are books written about it for children. I see much more references, many more references to it in social media. I think it's important to have a day to commemorate and remember the end of slavery, and particularly how people of that time felt when they heard that they were no longer going to be considered as chattel, as property owned by other people. So we don't really have a day to note that, to take note of that, and to contemplate that. And I think, you know, we should have some national day that recognizes it. Texas is your home state. When you were growing up in school, in your history class, did you learn comprehensive history or was it edited? Well, it was edited, uh, as always happens when you're trying to condense material for for kids, but it was edited in a particular kind of way. We touched on slavery only briefly. I don't know that I knew that there was a connection between the fight for the Texas Republic and the institution of slavery until my late teens. I don't recall that being a feature of what we were taught. And, of course, that complicates some of the mythologies of mythological figures or the heroic figures of Texas that we are taught to venerate, Travis and Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie. These people were fighting for a republic whose constitution explicitly protects slavery and says that African Americans can't be citizens. It complicates that narrative in ways that makes a lot of people today uncomfortable. What does the book mean to you personally? Because it is your personal story in many respects. It's interesting because when I was growing up and I thought that I would be a writer, I thought I would be writing essays like this. I hadn't thought of myself as being a historian and writing the kinds of things that I I typically write. I wanted to do more personal kind of writing. So it represents a return to something that I always wanted to do. It's revisiting a long-held desire and, and dream to talk about current events and the past, but in my own voice, using myself and my thoughts as the primary driver. I I get a chance to be personal with this. Annette Gordon-Reed is a historian and professor at Harvard Law School, the recipient of countless awards and fellowships, including the Pulitzer Prize, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a MacArthur Fellowship, the National Humanities Medal and National Book Award, and she is the author of On Juneteenth. Thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.